Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the Smarts and Strikes Podcast. We cover every bump, every spot, and chat with all the talent around the world of wrestling. Here's your host, Bill Matz, former WWE referee Kevin Keenan, and Eric Golden. Hey, everybody, how you doing? Well, that's good. Welcome to the very first episode of Smarts and Stripes in the new decade, 2020. That's right, we are here. My name is Bill Matz. I am your director of Funny Games for the evening. I am joined, as always, by Kevin Keenan, former WWE official that Kevin Keenan. Uh, I don't want to make anyone wait any longer than possible because for our first episode, we are kicking off the new year huge. Yeah, we're rocking it. The the guest we've wanted uh, since we started, really. Yeah, we've wanted this guy for a long time. He is the savior of misbehavior. To me, Bill, he will always be Sterling James Keenan. But to the masses, he smacked down lives. Corey Graves. How you doing, Graves? Good afternoon, good evening, whatever time it is. Uh, I am doing wonderfully, and I apologize because it's all uh, it's all downhill for the rest of the year from here. <laughs> <laughs> we'll take it. We will yeah, take we'll, it. Yeah, we'll, we'll take it. We'll start it off hot and, you know, just go right home. Uh, Graves, let's jump right into it. And obviously, you know, uh, we're, we're recording a podcast here, and over, uh, over the last few months, you've been tapped with hosting the first podcast uh, on the WWE Network of podcasts after the bell. Uh Tell us a little bit about it. How did this come about, and how are you approached to host the debut pod? Um, I was approached sometime toward the end of the summer. Uh, they floated the idea. I've been hearing rumblings for a while that WWE was looking to get into the podcast game because in our business, it seems like everyone and their mother has one. Sure. Um, so WWE kind of figured, hey, let's capitalize. It's a hot new medium. And uh, they just kind of wanted to dip their toe in the water, so to speak. We got partnered with Endeavor Media, who, uh, who helped kind of guide the ship through all this. And when they approached me, the first thing I asked was, how much leeway do I have? Uh, because, Kevin, as you know, there's a, there's a WWE way of doing things, mm-hmm. um, right, wrong, or indifferent sometimes, but WWE likes to kind of have their hands in everything. And I just wanted to know that I was going to be able to have at least some semblance of free reign. Uh, and that was the most important to me, just because the podcast, the wrestling podcast specifically, that have been successful, have been, you know, behind the curtain behind the scenes, uh, sometimes, you know, a little more honest than, than what we portray on SmackDown or Raw. Uh, so that was really important to me to be able to have some sort of freedom. And I was assured in the first phone call that it, they, they were fully prepared to sort of, uh, you know, push the, push the boundaries a little bit. And once I got that assurance, then it was just a matter of uh, 
getting paid. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Yeah, Corey, uh, I've been listening to the show. It seems like you do have a decent amount of leeway. Uh, the New Day show is pretty good as well. I suggest both to anybody, any wrestling fan out there, especially after the bell, though, because you're excellent on it. But uh, like you said, everyone and their mother seems to have a podcast. I mean, I'm just some guy from Philly with a former WWE ref, and we have one. Uh, <laughs> what? So it is a pretty saturated market, especially in you know wrestling, sports entertainment. What are the expectations from the company, uh, as well as from yourself, for After the Bell? Well, I think, again, I was I don't want to say I was an experiment, uh, because the company's been pretty behind me as far as this goes, but I, my show, After the Bell, is certainly the one that we're kind of working out all the kinks and see what works and see what doesn't. And as far as, from a technical standpoint, as, and as far as uh, release dates, and, and really sort of a guinea pig to study how and what works and what doesn't work, and uh, I had an idea for what I wanted my show to be. Uh, I have a, a team that works around me, the producers and, and uh, promotional people, and, and we kind of all collaborated and met in the middle. And we found out uh, kind of right off the bat within the first few weeks, some things work really well. Some things don't work. Um, and, and it's really just a learning process. And I, I'm of the understanding there will be more WWE podcasts in the future. I don't know what they are. Um, but I, I definitely was sort of tasked with being the guinea pig, and which I think benefited the New Day podcast, to your point. The, the New Day, I've heard a few episodes of it, and it's hilarious. I love those guys to death. I could watch them do their thing forever. But I think rolling me out and sort of taking the brunt of the, the experiment at first kind of taught everybody, okay, this works really well. Let's do this. And obviously, they're two totally different podcasts, and the content's very different. But I think from the, the technical and release standpoints, we learned a lot from that. All right. Uh, so you said you were kind of the guinea pig, but it, it, we're seeing you in a different light. We know uh, you have a ton of personality. It comes through. Everyone enjoys your, or at least 50% of the Internet really enjoys your commentary, I'd say. <laughs> the other 50%, well, you know, it's the Internet. It's the Internet. Uh, but we're seeing you in a little bit of a different light because you are – uh, you're driving the show. It's the Corey Graves show. You're not just on color, uh, filling in the blanks. Is there anything you've learned kind of being the host, uh, being on your own, that you uh, maybe didn't know beforehand? Yeah, it's, it's very different. Um, I've always known that, that my sort of humor and what I do on, on TV is very reactionary. Uh, even when I'm hanging out with my friends, I'm not usually the one to start the joke, but I'll be able to react or tag something on. That's just kind of my sense of humor. Um, so it's, it's definitely a different task for me to have to steer the ship. Um, and I think, I, I think a lot of people are getting to know the, you know, the guy behind the character a little bit more, um, as much as it is still a WWE produced podcast. Uh, I'm still a fan at the end of the day. We all are. That's why we do this. That's why we get upset. We're all fans. We all think things can be better. Things are good. Things are bad. Everyone's got an opinion. Um, but now I have a little bit more of a long-form platform to explain my thoughts, whereas on Raw or SmackDown, I have a, a few seconds to get out a soundbite and move on to the next thing. So I can sort of delve in a little bit deeper. Um, I'm still fighting a few battles. I would love to have a little bit longer-form interviews, uh, a little more time to really delve into some things. But A wrestler wants it, more time? I'm freaking shocked. Yeah, <laughs> imagine that, right? Um, I... I it's just based on a lot of the feedback I've been getting and people really dig the interviews. And I find myself sometimes just getting lost in conversation because most of these guys are my buddies. 
you know, these are the guys I, I see at work every week or sometimes hang out with beyond. So it's easy to get lost in a conversation with a guy like Cesaro or Samoa Joe and, and just shoot the breeze. And sometimes I find myself, you know, my producer goes, hey, uh, we're at 15 minutes. And I go, oh, man, I guess I got to wrap this up just for time. You know, there's a, there's a particular format that we agreed to as far as touching certain subjects and, and making sure we, we hit on Raw, hit on SmackDown, hit on NXT. That was kind of the, the original format. Again, it's, it's all a growing process, and I'm sure I'll get more leeway and things are going to evolve and change in the future. But, um, you know, it's, it's definitely different from trying to speak in sound bites or make a joke in, in a short window on television. You just mentioned Raw and NXT and SmackDown, and the last time something like this, uh, and Corey, you and I are right around the same age, so the last time something like this I, I think happened in the business is when... Uh, when we were younger and we, we, were, we were watching it as fans. But with Raw and NXT uh, on USA and you know, SmackDown on Fox, you got AEW, TNT, Impact on Access, WWE Network, New Japan World and the like, there's just so many things at your fingertips and so many options. Are we on the verge or maybe even in another boom uh, period of this industry? I think if you look at it from a business standpoint, as far as financially speaking, I think we definitely are. And that benefits everybody, particularly the, the talent, the boys and the girls that mm-hmm. now have a lot of options and places to go work and make a living, which I remember. And Kevin, like you said, we're about the same same time frame. There were very limited places where you could go to work if it wasn't WWE or and I, I think we were probably too young to really make an impact in WCW. Mm-hmm. But I definitely think from a business perspective, it is, I would say, the beginning, hopefully, for everybody involved of a boom period. Uh, it's like any business. Competition is good for everybody. It forces everybody to step up their game, forces everybody to, to put on you know, their, best, their best product possible. And hopefully, it, it's, a, it's not the trick it can be sustained. Because on the other hand, you risk burning everybody out. I mean, right now, you know, I work in WWE, and I don't have enough hours in my life to actually sit and watch everything that we produce. Sure. Um, you know, I obviously watch Raw, watch SmackDown, try to watch NXT, usually on demand. But like this weekend, we've got NXT UK TakeOver in Blackpool. And the last one that went down, I didn't probably watch until a week later just because I, I heard everybody buzzing about it. But that's also the beauty of the technology that we have now is you don't have to sit in front of your television and watch it live as it happens. I think a lot of people, uh, a lot of fans on Twitter in particular, put so much stock into the ratings and the live views, which, yeah, that, that is a massive part of our business because at the end of the day, despite how people consume their wrestling these days, you want to have good television ratings uh, because that's what advertisers look at to give you money because people forget that it's not about wrestling matches, it's about money. <laughs> but, but uh, yeah, I think, it's, I think it's a great time for everybody involved and, and it's what is it? What's the saying? The, uh, the the high tide raises all ships. I think that's what we're seeing right now, even down at the independent level. I mean, the, you know, you're, you're seeing these guys that have streaming platforms and, and internet TV and things like that. And uh, I, if it's out there and people want to consume it, you know, people are going to keep making it until they don't want to watch it. Anymore. You know, and to, and to that point, I was just saying to somebody yesterday, there's a lot of guys out there right now who who are in demand, who WWE wants or, you know, Impact wants or AEW wants, because we're in a different age now, different day and age, solely because of their uh, presence on social media. Ten years ago, that's a foreign thought. No, no doubt about it. I mean, I remember, you know, when I was on the independents, your best chance of getting booked was 
hoping that they talked about you on a message board you mm-hmm. know, for whatever for whatever company you were hoping to look for and, and trying to create a buzz that way. And with the rise of social media, sometimes I here, here's a here's a hot take for you. I, sometimes I think in this day and age that social media presence is detrimental to the business as a whole when it comes to certain people getting exposure. And I don't begrudge anybody for getting their name out or getting seen, but I feel as though it, it kind of, I don't want to say hurts the business, but I think a lot of what goes into the business and goes into a, a lot of the guys and girls that become successful, the grind, it, it's almost like an instant gratification. Like, oh, well, this guy trended on Twitter last week, so we better book him. And I don't think a lot of the people necessarily learn a lot of the values that were required and, and to some extent still are required to survive and really thrive in WWE or AEW or any company to really have, you know, you, you have a flash in the pan internet buzz, which used to, you know, maybe get eyes on you, but you necessarily couldn't expose yourself. Now it, you see a lot of guys who are, who are the hot new thing for a month. And then you go, whatever happened to that guy? And, and, and I, you know, you ha- it happens all the time where, where I'll be scrolling through the inter- Twitter or Instagram or something and then go, oh, I, I've heard about this guy. And then by the time I take the time to look at them, you can't even find them anymore. So let's pivot that way real quick, because I do find it interesting. So the business today, I mean, quite frankly, the the world is different than it was when I met you back in 2005. I mean, it's different than it was even five years ago last year. Uh, and I think a lot of that does have to do with the way social media uh, is being used. You know, I, I've stated that many times, you know, talking with Bill and our other co-host, Turtle, who's not here. When I came into the WWE system, that's that's really where I learned how to work. You know, I really, truly understood the business when I got to OVW. Sympathy on a baby face, heat on a heel, tell a good story, all of those points to get over with the crowd. But I think social media and Twitter has made it harder for at least one or two of those points to get properly accomplished. In your opinion, what is the actual role of social media in today's wrestling world? I think more often than not, social media is a positive, uh, even if it's from someone who's not getting used on TV to have a platform. They can, they can put a promo out through you know, WWE's Twitter or, or on their own social media or whatever it is. It definitely does more good than harm. However, I think social media has a tendency, not just with the wrestling business, but as a whole, to sort of overvalue itself. And it gets that mob mentality, and you think, oh, well, these like-minded people not that you're wrong. These people think like me. I don't have to look at the big picture. Now, I, I, Kevin, I don't know if you've been around William Regal enough to hear his, his speech that he gives to everybody, all the new guys. And I've heard it so many times. I could probably recite it verbatim, but it's so dead on true. He explains how you're inclined to engage with and react to the people that you see. Sure. So every, you know, whether it be on Twitter, you see, I can open my Twitter and realize that Bill123 hates my commentary. So I go, oh, man, this guy, you know, I'm, I'm more inclined to react to that. When you're in an arena, you're inclined, and depending if it's a live event or television, you're inclined to react to the 5,000 people or whoever around the ring. But you don't think about what's going on, on the other side of the camera. Now, we know that there are somewhere usually generally between two and three million people that watch raw or SmackDown or any given product, you know, in a given week, let's say something trends on Twitter. It takes what, like 5,000 tweets. Is that what it is now? That's like a third of, that's a third of any major arena, you know? Exactly. And so 
and, and again, we now see it in front of us. It, they can tag you and say, oh, this match was the worst match we've ever seen. And, you know, people pile on on Twitter and it creates a trend. And like I said, it's, it's beyond WWE or, or pro wrestling as a whole. It's really anything in society. But you're not looking at the big picture. So let's say, yeah, 300 people sent you tweets that they hated your match. But 3 million saw it. Maybe the other, you know, two point whatever million didn't, didn't just, they hated it and didn't react. But I, I think a lot of people lose sight of the fact. And to that point, it, it works both ways where if somebody does something good and it creates a trend on Twitter, I think a lot of times, a lot of companies, WWE guilty at times, uh, try to capitalize off of something that was a buzz that didn't necessarily translate to the masses because we forget at the end of the day, we're selling to the masses. I love that you said that because that gives me validation. I've said it multiple times on this show that Yes, and I'm going, to, I'm going to use the word inclined because it's the only word I can think of. You are inclined to, to cater to the people that are in the arena. They, they paid to see you. But the real audience, the real, real audience are the millions on the other side of the camera. Bill, I've, I've said it. Oh, we, when we talk about matches I or beat, stories I, or a, anything. I beat, a dead yeah. ho- I beat a dead horse with it. Um, I, I love that, uh, that that came up. We talked about NXT just a couple minutes ago, and I do want to jump back there. Uh, the move to the USA Network, uh, in your opinion, Corey, is that something that the brand really needed to do in order to be looked at as the third brand of the company and, and, and not necessarily be developmental was make that jump off the network to, uh, to national television? I think internally for a while longer, it has been viewed as a third brand, but yeah, I would say now the fact is it is on cable television. And again, it goes back to viewers, how many eyes are on what you're doing. It's, you cannot argue the fact that more people watch NXT now than when it was just on WWE network. It did good numbers as far as the WWE Network is concerned, but now there are so many people that have had, up until a few months ago, had no idea what NXT was. And now, maybe you're flipping through the channel on a Wednesday night, and you go, oh, I've never seen this. Now, to the internet, who are going to, you know, again, back to overvaluing ourselves, we're all guilty of it, are going to go, oh, well, we've been watching these guys for years. How did you not know Adam Cole was awesome? But, you know, the, the million people or whatever... NXT draws or in that neighborhood every every week now, not all of them watched Ring of Honor. Not all of them had any idea who Adam Cole was. And now they're going, whoa, this guy's pretty good. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I, like, I see that personally. Like I, I've been watching a lot of these guys. I became familiar with you in NXT uh, at the beginning there. But like I have friends who are just as big of WWE fans as me, but they're not familiar with any of these guys. Suddenly, they're on the USA Network and go, oh, I like this show just as much or more than Raw and SmackDown, depending on, you know, the episode of the week. But I want to talk uh, a little bit about your NXT career now, Corey. I just want to know, because that's, I real I used to write these uh, crappy reviews for this uh, little news site, like get paid five bucks for them or whatever. Oh, uh, man, you were a dirt sheet writer? Uh, I, not, I wasn't like spreading rumors or anything. Uh, I was just like reviews. Fun, guys. Thanks, I'll talk to you later. <laughs> no, God, no. I was just writing reviews for like five bucks when I was 20. Uh but I, I, one of the highlights every week was always your commentary. That's when I really got into your work. Uh, and, of course, you know, you were in the ring there as well. What do you think the highlight of your time in NXT was, either behind the desk or in the ring? Well, I'm going to get to that in a second. I'm actually going to double back to, to your last question and the last point you made about how people know, you know, hardcore fans know and recognize wrestlers a lot longer than the masses do. To your point, you said you remember me wrestling in NXT. 
these were the early days of NXT on, you know, even I think some of them predated WWE Network. Yeah, like Hulu days. You would be, you would be amazed. I would dare say the vast majority of our audience, I'd hate to try to put a number on it, but the majority of our audience has no idea I was ever a wrestler. Oh, that's yeah, I would. Why, that's why I, I very rarely, once in a while, Cole will bring it up, or if I've been in the ring with somebody, I'll, I'll drop it in. But I don't rely on that because in the, the eyes of the masses, I don't have the credibility of being a WWE superstar. They know me now as a commentator, and hopefully they, they know that I understand what I'm talking about. But the, the business and the fan base has changed so quickly over the past few years that they don't look at me as go, going, oh, this is Corey Graves. He was NXT Tag Team Champion, and he wrestled all of the guys that we watch the shield and Bray Wyatt and all those guys, they don't look at it like that because I never had the exposure to the masses. My exposure has come as a commentator. So back, back to your question. Um, it's so hard for me to pinpoint anything. Uh, it was such a, such a fun time that it, it, it probably is a lot more fun looking back on it now than it was at the time. Cause it was so stressful. Kevin, you, you spent time in the, in the uh, developmental system. Oh yeah. And you know what a, what a uh, brain tease that can be, to say it nicely. Both OVW and FCW, yep. Yeah, and um, it, it was, it, looking back on it now, I go, man, it was so simple to be able to sleep in my own bed and, <laughs> and things like that, you know, go, go train for a few hours or go to TV for the day in Orlando and drive back home to Tampa and go to sleep. Um, I don't necessarily know that I appreciated it on that level at the time. Right. But I, in ring, Honestly, I was always so self-conscious of what I did in the ring. I never watched my stuff back. I never really enjoyed I was just I was just so hypercritical of myself that I never really probably took the time to enjoy what I was doing. Um, I probably enjoy it more now thinking back in hindsight. But I would say looking at the big picture of it now, just learning commentary and then getting comfortable on commentary um, – just in the grand scheme of my life and my career, it was probably the most important to me. And I think when I first kind of started hitting my groove with when, when Tom Phillips and I started doing the two-man commentary for NXT, that whole run um, through, I remember TakeOver Dallas, and I think the one in Toronto with DIY versus The Revival, like those matches in particular stand out, not so much because the commentary was perfect, but because I remember feeling like I'm going to be okay. I've, I'm getting the hang of this. I'm figuring this out. I'm getting comfortable. Maybe I'm, you know, not up to creep without a paddle. I'm glad you brought up Tom and Corey. You and I have we've we've kept in, uh, we've kept in touch to an extent, you know, over the years. But most recently, we were reconnected uh, by Tom Phillips. And Tom, you know, for for my money, he right now is is the best play by play guy in the business. Uh, I really do mean that. Uh, and you sat next to Tom on SmackDown Live for a little over two years and 205 before uh, 205 Live rather. Before that, how has he helped you become a better broadcaster? Tom was really, really pivotal in my role because he had just come off of SmackDown, I think, and was sent back to NXT. And he was kind of trying to rediscover himself. He had his little first run on SmackDown, and, and he wasn't comfortable, and the company wasn't necessarily comfortable with what he was doing. So it was kind of almost like, all right, you're being sent back to the minors figure it out and then we'll, we'll reassess later. So I had just started kind of getting my footing as a commentator. And the idea was 
put, to put the two of us together. And I believe it was Hunter's idea that said, hey, let's try a two-man booth. Because at that point, Raw was three, SmackDown was three, and Hunter's still an old-school guy at heart, and mm-hmm. I think he wanted to try the two-man booth. Uh, if it wasn't him, then I'm giving somebody else's credit to him, so <laughs> I apologize. But uh, it was kind of an experiment. And as much as I, it was a, really a mutual growing experience because I was still trying to find my footing as a broadcaster, period. Tom was a broadcaster trying to fit into the WWE world, which, you know, any commentator that came from a sports world, even Michael Cole included, will tell you, that's trying to put a, a square peg into a round hole. Mm-hmm. So we both, I think, really kind of learned. And I remember we, we called something together and... I can't remember if it was Cole or somebody previously had told me the importance of chemistry with your partner. And Tom and I called something, and it was pretty rotten. And I remember going, Tom, after the show, we're going to the bar. (laughs) And he was like, okay. We we were both kind of down, and we sat there, and it was almost like, I'm going to be friends with you if this is the last thing we both do. Because we didn't really know each other when we started. We'd been acquaintances, but we weren't. We were the furthest thing from friends. So... He and I spent countless hours, probably too many hours, our livers will hate us later, uh, (laughs) for sitting at the bar and just getting to know each other. And he would ask me questions about the wrestling business or about WWE. And he would float suggestions to me about, hey, maybe try doing this as a a commentator, as a broadcaster. So it was really, really uh, important to have that relationship and for both of us to sort of grow together and – yeah, I, I still look back on those days very fondly, and I, I have no doubt in my mind that Tom will continue to shine in WWE, even if he's not you know, on one of the big shows at the moment. Um, he's, he's still such a valuable part of the team, and he's, he's even lending his knowledge now to newer guys that are coming up and trying to learn things. Um, so we, we all kind of grew through it together. So I, I have the utmost respect for Tom. I tell him all the time, I've never been more pro somebody than him. Like I really... He doesn't make it about him. There's there's a lot of commentators and a lot of and a lot of play by play guys who have over the years who have made it about him. He's very straight down the middle, knows how to but knows how to tell the story and convey what we're seeing on screen, and that's what I really really uh, enjoy about him. You know, man, I've often heard people refer to you uh, as a modern day Bobby Heenan, and I almost right away go, man, like no, he's the first Corey Graves. When you hear those kind of compliments and that type of comparison, in a lot of ways, man, very early on in your commentary career, how does that make you feel? Uh, it makes me incredibly uncomfortable just because I grew up idolizing Heenan and Gorilla and Jesse Ventura, and, and that whole era was what I was raised on. And I just have a hard time wrapping my head around those comparisons. I, I'm not upset by them by any means, but I just don't feel like they're, they're appropriate or that I've earned them yet. Um, and I, to your point, I, I think I'm kind of carving my own path in that I'm just because of necessity, I've become, yes, I'm a color commentator, but I am also very capable of doing a lot of things that nobody in my role has done before, um, such as you know, we call it traffic, mm-hmm. you know, calling graphics, throwing to packages, things like that. Now, that's typically the play-by-play guy's role, and I will generally defer to them. But in the event that it needs to be done, I've gotten to the point where I can do these things now. Um, so I, I'm wearing a lot of different hats, especially on Friday Night SmackDown now that it's just Cole and I. Uh, whereas, you know, Cole tells me all the time, JBL or King, these guys are some, some of the, the great color commentators. 
couldn't call a graphic or hit a count to save their life just because they'd never learned <laughs> because they never really needed to because they always had their play-by-play guys right. doing all the heavy lifting. Um, part of it's voluntary, part of it's necessity, but I kind of like knowing all the aspects of what I, is needed of me or what could be needed of me just in case you know the ship starts going down, I'm grabbing the first bucket. Uh, Corey, I want to touch a little more on your style because I appreciate uh, how you are made uncomfortable by a comparison to Bobby Heenan because Jesus, that dude—it's uh, Bobby freaking Heenan we're talking about here. But uh, exactly. when I listen to you, when I listen to you do commentary, I, everything in wrestling evolves from something. I hear Heenan, I hear shades of JBL, Lawler, all the the, the smart Alec color commentator that character you're portraying. But the thing I love about your style is that you make references for people like me, whether you're quoting the Bruce Pritchard podcast or you're saying lines out of rancid songs. And I just want to know, like, do you go in, uh, you've connected with your audience and, and me and a lot of people I know through that, but uh, like, do you go in thinking, okay, I'm going to hit on this and this, or is that all improv? You say you're very reactionary in, in uh, your style. Is that all improv? Yeah, the, the God's honest truth, I swear on my children, I have not written a note to prepare for a show in more years than I can remember. That's so cool. Um, That's fantastic. I, I guess I, I just, I'm too much of a, I guess, pop culture junkie and I read too much and, and music, movies, everything. Um, it's just kind of my sense of humor. So sometimes I'll throw something out there that I don't think anybody gets. You'd be amazed at how many references or jokes and, or the things that come out of my mouth are literally to make either Michael Cole laugh or <laughs> one of the guys in the truck and here, there are references that I don't think anybody's even going to get. And I'll, I'll open my Twitter and be like, oh, my God, I can't believe I, I hit the, uh, the three rules of fighting from the uh, Terry Silver three rules of fighting one night on an episode. I think it was of 205 Live because uh, my producer that was in the truck that night made a bet with me. He goes, I bet you can't work all of Terry Silver's rules for fighting into <laughs> the broadcast tonight. And I think I did it in one match. And, and it, there, there was no rhyme or reason. It was just me trying to entertain myself and, and make the guys in the truck laugh. Uh, but, yeah, I, I almost never, ever, you know, prepare lines. Or um, The last one I was, I was pretty proud of was uh, when The Fiend won the title. And I, I was trying to think of something dramatic. And Cole did his clothes and, and Bray standing there with the, with the Universal Championship. And the uh, – was it the, the Night of the Living Dead – or Dawn of the Dead, when there's no more room in hell, the dead will walk the earth. Oh, yeah, uh, Night of the Living, one of them. It it just came to me, and I was like, oh, that's perfect. (laughs) And I said it, and we we, we went off the air, and Cole goes, god damn, that was a good line. I was like, oh, I stole that from a movie. (laughs) That's you hit, uh, you hit, do you know where the power lies one night, and that just, that got me good. I was like, oh, (laughs) all right, way to go, Corey, you got me on that one. Hey, I want to touch on something real quick that, uh, that Triple H said on After the Bell last week. Um, Especially given the style that a lot of the guys uh, work today, you know, he brought up Tommaso uh, learning how to become a producer and prepare for life uh, after the ring. In your opinion, Corey, do you agree with that? If they, if, if the guys these days want longevity in the industry, should they find something else to do after the, uh, you know, after their time in the ring? Should they be learning something else while they're an active in-ring competitor? Man, I am living proof that that is the God's honest truth. Uh, I had no idea that I was going to be shut down. I mean, I knew I had some injury issues, but I had no clue that this was coming, that this whole you know, change of direction was, was headed my way. Um, and if you'd asked me when it went down, sure, I was going to be in the ring for another 15 years. You know, I felt good physically. I was okay. And then, uh, you know, boom, the world turns on you. 
But yeah, I, I definitely think it's it's good and it's important to be open. And that's what you see a lot of in the performance center is just the opportunity to be exposed. Because I, Kevin, you can attest until you're in the WWE system in the world, you realize how things are done here. Mm-hmm. No matter what you've done around the world or in the independent, it doesn't it's matter. Not the same. Right? It, it's not. It, it's just that it's a different world. It's it a is. different product. It, everything about it is completely different. So I think the important thing to anybody that you know it, it wants to come to WWE or NXT or anybody that's even there is to be open-minded. Um, and, and this is such a wonderful, insane, unique business that I never in a million years, I've watched this for you know, 32, 33 years of my life since I was a little baby watching wrestling. I never in a million years thought I was going to be a color commentator, ever. Never even entertained the thought. But here I am, and, and I'm you know, making a good living and having a blast, and I'm busy, and I'm happy, and I'm adding my little flavor to my corner of the business. And whether that comes as a producer, I mean, we've got a lot of guys behind the scenes now that never even competed in WWE, but I, you know, I came up with on the independents or, or traveling around mm-hmm. Europe, but, you know, Sanjay Dutt and Abyss and all these guys that have certainly paid their dues around the world or in different companies that are still very valuable assets to WWE and the business as a whole. So, and again, I would, would all of us like to say, Oh yeah, I was the universal champion and I beat Brock Lesnar at WrestleMania. Sure. I mean, that's, that's the best case scenario, but if you look at it realistically, you can still make a great life for yourself and enjoy the business and get most of the aspects that you love uh, out of it. As long as you're willing to, to kind of roll with the punches a little bit. Corey, I want to ask a little about this transition you made, because you said you never in a million years dreamed you'd be a color commentator, but here you are. Uh, You went from having, you know, spending most of your adult life preparing for your match, preparing for your segment, and now you do a two-hour weekly live television program beginning to end. Uh, What's the toughest part about that? Like, is it trying to keep your stuff fresh? Uh, We've all heard about how Vince can be tough in certain guys' ears. Uh, Just trying to nail something down, what what, what would be the toughest part? Uh, I think I'm actually running into that now more so than when I was calling everything. When I was calling Raw and SmackDown and pay-per-view start to finish, I knew every story, every in, every out, every interaction, who did what last week, just because that was like how my mind worked. I was so deep in the bubble that I didn't even have to think twice and I could just react and draw from what happened and, and you know, tell my own stories as needed. Now, my schedule's not necessarily any, le- any easier, uh, but I find myself thinking like, oh, did that happen last week or was that two weeks ago? Like just taking that half a step back, not being dead center for everything, I find myself second guessing myself at times where I'm like, Oh wait, did that, did he do that? Wait, no, that was two weeks ago. Uh, When was the last paper? Like my my memory just doesn't work quite the same as it used to. Uh, Maybe it's just, I'm getting old, but that to me has, has been um, really tricky. And I think at the end of the day, the business is the business. And I've been in the wrestling business for more than half of my time here on earth in one capacity or another. And you're still telling stories and the psychology for all intents and purposes is the same. And I think if you understand the business, it's a lot easier to lend yourself to what's happening on television. Like for example, Samoa Joe was getting these rave reviews when he was on the commentary desk mm-hmm. and deservedly. So he was awesome. Yeah, he was great, but it, it seemed like such a breath of fresh air because he went in there 
and he wasn't trying to fit into a role. He just got to be himself, this guy who, oh, has done just about everything there's to do in wrestling and is a very articulate, intelligent human being. And it just seemed so shockingly good because it was refreshing. And I, yeah, I worry about, you know, overexposing myself, which that was, that wasn't my choice. I never asked to be on every second of programming, but I'm not going to say no to the boss. You know what I mean? But, uh, yeah, I, I think just kind of staying fresh and trying not to get stuck in a lull. And the other thing that, that from a broadcaster's perspective, I never really appreciated. I, I've been on the wrong end of it as a wrestler, but never as a broadcaster is when the crowd is dead. That goes back to I am trying to convey emotion and tell stories to the people that are watching on television at home. But when the crowd in the arena is dead, I think the human reaction is to go, oh, well, I guess we're all kind of feeling down. So to try to keep my energy up is really uh, something I, I don't want to say I have to, to focus on, but it's something I've definitely had to work on in the past where it's like, okay, the crowd's dead. The crowd doesn't care about this segment, but someone at home might think this is the greatest thing ever, so i got to treat it like it's really cool. That's, and that's interesting. I hadn't thought of that because we've seen you know segments that get over huge that you're not expecting. We've seen segments that are supposed to be great flop, and the announcers have to keep that sort of energy uh, throughout the show. So I hadn't thought about that. I just It doesn't sound like you really miss doing both shows. You know what? I, I, I don't as far as uh, just, I mean, workload-wise. Um, but, I mean, to be honest, by the time you, you subtract raw and add what I have to do with prep and, and post shows for after the bell, I just, you know, traded Mondays for Tuesdays, basically. Um, but I, I, I liked it from the perspective that I was so hardwired to everything WWE. I, I, it, was, it was reflexive. I didn't have to think. I didn't have to question myself. It was like, oh, no, this happened. I called that last week. Now, just t- taking on, you know, I, I only have to focus on two hours a week as far as television goes. But um, I don't know. I kind of miss being, like, the go-to guy for everything. As we start to wind down here, a few more for you. Um, I'm not sure if you remember this, but I've told the story on this show before. Uh, Ford Field, Detroit, Michigan, WrestleMania 23. I'm still with the company at the time. I'm walking through the stands to get down to the floor. I'm going to talk to a couple of the camera guys. And who do I bump into, Bill, but, but the future Corey Graves? Uh, we talk for a few minutes and go on our way. But my point being, uh, Graves, does it ever get lost on you when you look back at those times, sitting in the stands in WrestleMania and not even 10 years later, you're on the other side of the barrier calling WrestleMania and also in a lot of ways, the voice of the entire company? I think it's easy to let that get lost, um, but I try to take a moment every once in a while, probably not as often as I should, to look at it as a whole. I mean, I think it's human nature that whatever you're in at the time and whatever you're doing and that's consuming your life, you become, I don't want to say jaded, but it's its life. It's everyday life. I'm, I'm going to my job. This is my role. I'm doing all those sort of things. But uh, what usually keeps me in check pretty well is my dad. Uh, I'll tell him a story. Uh, half the time it's me venting to him about something. And he'll go, do you realize what you just said to me? <laughs> and, and I kind of go, oh, yeah, this is weird. Like, I remember a few months back when I was still living in Connecticut, uh, and I was on a plane. Uh, I flew on the boss's plane for, to TV for whatever reason that, that week, and I was on a jet. Just me, Vince McMahon, <laughs> Shane McMahon, Paul Heyman, and Eric Bischoff. All pretty, on, decent, on, pretty decent group on there. Vince's jet, and I'm going... <laughs> 
what the hell am I doing here? <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Back when I was a teenager, when you know, during the Monday Night Wars, the days of ECW, I am going, what? There's no way you could have you. You couldn't have convinced me that would ever be a possibility. You have three. You have three of the people who carved out the industry as we know it on that plane with you. Yeah, and then me sitting <laughs> in the back trying to like not freak out. So yeah, I mean, I, I do my best, and again, I, I'm sure there are times where I, uh, you know, I get so wrapped up in it that I don't take the time to appreciate it. I think the the last time that really really stood out to me was uh, my first WrestleMania which was Orlando, I believe. It was definitely in Orlando. I don't remember if it was my first one. But it was when, when the uh, – yes, it was, because Tom and I called the kickoff match for uh, the Cruiserweight title, I think it was. And then Cole came out, and they did the whole WrestleMania cold open mm-hmm. and the pyro and all the craziness, and the, the fighter jets flew over the stadium. Yeah. And that was the first time I remember going, holy crap, I'm calling WrestleMania. <laughs> And and then like then the bell rang and I just went right back into my role and I went back you know it becomes muscle memory at that point, but that was the one that always stands out to me is like, what are you doing here, man? <laughs> uh, I'm curious to know um, who do you look at as the next guy who really hasn't hasn't been at the top of the card yet? For me, uh, for me it's Andrade for a, a variety of reasons and he's on his way there. Uh, his his work is flawless. Current United States champion. The guy looks like a star. I mean, he has awesome gear. He has Selena Vega. When I look at him, I think top guy. Who is that for Corey Graves? Drew McIntyre. Love it. I I don't really think. I mean, I, I don't disagree with you about Andrade. I think you've got a, a incredibly bright future. Definitely going to be a star, hopefully for a long time. But I think as far as if you wanted to pull the trigger in the next three months. Drew's got to be the dude, and he he looks like an action figure. He can talk, <laughs> he can work. I mean, it, since he came back, everything that dude's touched has been gold. So I, that that's my pick. Corey, you mentioned a few minutes ago that you've been watching, you know, wrestling basically your entire life since you were a small child. So I just want to know, like, who was your guy when you were a kid? Who was the one that got you in it uh, to the extent that you are now? Maybe inspired you to pursue it. Who was the guy for you? Well, I was born in 1984, so okay. naturally I was a Hogan guy when I was, you know, a little kid. Uh, and then I remember WrestleMania six, and it was the Warrior. Warrior was my guy. And then I think, like anything in life, your tastes change as you mature and you get older. Uh, and then it was Sean and Brett. And then I think once I got into the business, it became Ric Flair. Once I started working and wrestling and understanding that aspect of things, Flair became my guy, and I still think if I had to choose, Ric Flair would probably be my all-time favorite. Is he your dream match? Uh, 20 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> and I have to say that because if it were given an option, you know Flair would be signing the contract tomorrow. Oh, <laughs> without a doubt. Without a doubt. Uh, hey, two more for you here, and this is kind of an off-the-wall kind of question. So, uh when we announced you last week, you know, Bill and I are in, in Sports Talk Radio here in Philadelphia. By the way, Fly Eagles Fly. Um, well, didn't work out too well for us this week, did it, Bill? I'm just glad we're not talking about hockey after <laughs> this road trip. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was waiting for that one to come up. That's Corey, you kill I'm from New Jersey, and I'm a Flyers fan. You give me, like, I am your target that you're trolling every, every time it comes up. Like, I am the guy you're killing. 
<laughs> Go ahead, Kev. So uh, when we, we when we announced Corey Graves last week uh, as coming on the pod, I get a text from our former afternoon producer here uh, at Sports Radio WIP. He got his start at one of our sister stations out in Pittsburgh, 93.7 The Fan, and he sent me a link to a message board, which is the only thing he could find on a Corey Graves radio career. Uh, I'm looking at this message board, and it's 93.7 uh, The Fan, and it's using Graves' government name, and I'm like, yep, that's definitely him. Were you in sports talk radio for a period of time, or was that something that you gave consideration to? I had a cup of coffee in the sports talk radio industry. Um, it all came about by weird chance. Uh, basically, one of my really close friends and I would sit at the bar, and he was actually a broadcaster. He was a sports guy on television here in Pittsburgh, and he got an offer to go do this 93.7, which at the time was 24-hour live radio. And we used to sit at the bar long before then and just talk about how, oh, someday we're going to be like the next Mike and Mike or something <laughs> along those lines. And just, you know, just two dudes BSing and fantasizing. And I get a call one night. I was in Cleveland at an independent show. And he calls me and says, hey, what are you doing Sunday? And I go, I, I don't know why. He goes, uh, I got you an opportunity. You're going to come do radio with me. And I said, what? <laughs> he said, yeah, in the middle of the afternoon, it was like 1 to 4 p.m. He goes, I talked to my program director, told him about you. He wants to hear what you can do. Now, I had never done a, a minute of radio in my life. I was still working at a tattoo shop or 911, I think, at the time. And I was like, uh, okay. So we went in there and just chopped it up. And we were two buddies talking about sports like we did at the bar all the time. And next thing I know, they made me an offer. And within a few weeks, I was doing the 2 to 6 a.m. shift. Which, let me tell you, not an easy thing to do. We've to both done it, your, yeah. We both, yeah. Yeah, we've both done it. Not easy at all. <laughs> talk, to, talk to yourself for four hours because, God forbid, anyone calls in. Nobody, no one wants to be a guest at that time. Nobody's calling in to listen aside from the guys leaving the bar or the people working night shift. Correct. And uh, it, was, it was daunting, but I did it for a while. And I actually think the last night I did it was, it was like July 3rd or July 4th when Brock Lesnar won the uh, UFC heavyweight title. Oh, wow. <laughs> it was that night because I remember I was at my parents' house watching the fight on pay-per-view, and then I had to leave and go to the studio. And I think it was just one of those things, radio, as I learned, was a very uh, cutthroat business like so many are as far as politics and this, that, and the other thing go. And I had no business there to begin with, so I wasn't trying to stake my claim on anything. There were a lot of people who, who went to school for it and deserved those opportunities a hell of a lot more than I did. And it was just something I kind of fell into. But uh, ironically enough, it was a, a conversation in New Orleans after WrestleMania there a few years ago with Michael Cole, where I just, in passing, had mentioned that I did radio at one point. And it was his idea, once I got hurt and shut down, to ask me to do commentary. So it came full circle for you. Yeah, crazy, right? It, it's funny, Bill. I mean, I couldn't have put up the announcement any quicker, and I got that text from Ben. That's funny. And he he, he, he fancies himself as a ninety three seven historian. He said <laughs> it, that this made him really giddy. So he's going to be happy. To, he's going to be happy to listen to this uh, to this episode. Graves, last question for you. Uh, when this is all done for you, uh, and you look at the body of work you've created uh, in the ring, on the headset, podcast host, what are you going to be most proud of? I think you have to look at all of it big picture. I've gotten into this insane business already almost 20 years. I mean, I started training when I was 14 and setting up rings and cleaning bathrooms and refereeing, doing anything I could to get my foot in the door. And 
I think it'll probably have to be at the end when I can look back and go, oh, my God, look how far I've come. Um, I just want to contribute to this business that has given me such a fun, wild, interesting life. And if I can be looked at as somebody who contributed positively, hopefully for long term, uh, to this thing that I love and has given me love back, uh, I think that's all I can really ask for. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. Back clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. Yes, and even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening.